Hello, and welcome. My name is Andrew Gilbert, and I live and work in Toronto and in Mississauga, both of which lie on the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today, this meeting place is still the home to many indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and I am grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. If I were to critique myself, the only limitation really is that to do an ethnography of landmines, for me personally, I was not going to go with a minesweeper and actually like enter into a minefield. But I could take seriously the fact that some of the people I talked to would say, come join me in a minefield, it'll be fine. I know exactly what I'm doing because I know these mines. I also am a patriot, I'm a hero, I'm a fully masculine Korean man because I could feed my family by outwitting the mines. But at the same time, I have gotten a little bit of pushback from people who are saying like, well, they're awful and they traumatize people. And I say, yes, of course, they're awful and they traumatize people, but all sorts of other things happen too. That's Alina Kim, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Irvine, and author of the article, Toward an Anthropology of Landmines, Rogue Infrastructure and Military Waste in the Korean Demilitarized Zone. My name is Andrew Gilbert, and this is the podcast series where I put that turn of phrase, an anthropology of, under scrutiny, and ask various authors who have used that phrase, what does it mean to propose an anthropology of something, and why and how would you do it in the first place? If you're listening to this, then it probably means you already listened to the debut episode, which explains the origins of my interest in these questions. If not, I recommend listening to it first, or at least the opening few minutes. Now, origin stories were among the first things I asked my interlocutors about. Where did the idea to propose an anthropology of come from? So let's begin with Alina's. The origin of the essay was really obviously in my fieldwork, which was focused on the ecologies of the Korean demilitarized zone from the South Korean side. And I was doing work with citizen ecologists, but also trying to track the ways in which that those regions kind of in the northernmost part of South Korea abutting the DMZ were being increasingly developed for tourism uh, based on the idea of the demilitarized zone having this kind of rare biodiversity. And so these are mostly small towns and villages that um, for decades since the Korean War have been heavily militarized, are considered to be economically backward because they had all these restrictions on their development. And because of the changing economies of the area in terms of the positioning of troops and uh, the depopulation because the younger generations are choosing not to return when they leave for schooling, the economic future of these places were really hinging on tourism. So I would go up there with people who were from rural development organizations or trying to help train local people in becoming tour guides and, and such. And what struck me was that in all of my forays through this area, you know, you would see landmine signs 
one knew that this is one of the most heavily mined areas in the world. And yet, at least when I was doing sort of more ecological fieldwork, uh, people didn't talk about it. And in retrospect, I remember going into these fields and <laughs> wading through streams. And then it would come up, but almost like a joke, like, oh, I hope there are no landmines here. And then that would sometimes lead to stories about people they knew who had been injured by mines or had been exposed to them. But the sense of immediate bodily risk was not there. And so when I first heard stories about landmines, there was this kind of jokey, dark humor. But then, oh yeah, like there are tons of landmines here. It was hard to keep in mind as a serious thing. That tone combined with all those, you know, bright red mine signs that you would see, there was just a kind of cognitive dissonance. And so then when I first heard the stories that I write about in the essay, I almost didn't hear them, if you know what I mean, because they were just in the landscape that I had in my mind of this place where they were not, I just didn't know where to put them. And this is what happens with fieldwork. You go back to the transcripts and re-listen to things. And then suddenly they just popped. And I was like, wow, I couldn't really grasp that this person was talking about minds as something that he overcame that was so central to his personhood. Of course, he knew the stories about the victims, how horrible and heinous landmines are, but the lived experience of moving through these spaces was very flat. And then his narrative was neither of those things. Once I identified that, I knew I had to write about landmines because there's such a prominent aspect of the ecologies there. So she knew she had to write about them, but it was not immediately clear how. Then, of course, I went to the literature. What, what are people saying about landmines? And as you know, in any field, there are certain frameworks and uh, discursive tools and theoretical trends. At that moment, it was really about ruins and ruination, coming from Ann Stoller's work and Nail, uh, uh, Navarro Yashin's work. And then I stumbled upon David Henning's essay. They explained part of it, but they didn't explain the liveliness in the stories that I had heard. I was also at the time involved in a group, Julie Chu at Chicago and Michael Fish and Andrew Matthews, Bettina Stutzer, and I were thinking through infrastructure. A few other people kind of came and went, Amal Bashara and, and Brian Larkin. I don't know, I'm not going to remember everyone's names, but in any case, we were thinking through infrastructure together and I increasingly got inspired by those conversations to really take the materiality of the mind seriously and to try to bring out um, the ways that we had to understand the ways that minds work always in relation to the humans that are their targets. And this isn't just to be anthropocentric, but it's because minds are actually designed to um, precisely be attuned to human weight and to human anatomy. Once I started thinking in those terms, I kind of step-by-step entered into the STS way of uh, thinking through agency. To get back to your original question, I think the anthropology of here really is, uh, was a response to not seeing um, a way to approach this question that emerged ethnographically about what is this 
relationship between humans and minds in these ecologies in the existing literature because it was overwhelmingly tilted towards a kind of always already humanitarian response to the victimology of minds. And they weren't lots of stories. It was really inspired by one conversation and one very telling story. But in thinking through the affects that came out so clearly, I was um, looking for a different way to account for that theoretically. So there's much more I could say because I think there's other stakes when you try to write against a humanitarian <laughs> argument. And, you know, that to use the metaphor is like stumbling into a minefield. When I asked Alina why she chose the first part of her title, Toward an Anthropology of Landmines, she could not quite recall but did note that it was inspired by the greater anthropological attention being paid to military waste more generally. I don't actually remember why that title, but if I could give a reason now, it would be because landmines are a global problem. I mean, they don't exist in every country in the world, but they exist in many, many places. And so there's a lot of opportunity for anthropologists working in different parts of the world to engage with these questions of not just landmines, but military waste in general and unexploded ordnance by happenstance. There was a student at UCI in the graduate program. We kind of barely overlapped, but Leah Zani was doing work in um, Southeast Asia and Laos on unexploded ordnance. And she and Darcy D'Angelo, who does work in um, Cambodia, organized a AAA panel and various things evolved out of that. And then I organized a workshop at Irvine called Militarized Ecologies that brought some people together more generally around questions of war, warcraft, empire, military violence, etc. And so, you know, th those kinds of seeds have really started to um, grow into some really interesting networks right now. So that's been really exciting. The anthropology of is not just me, there's more. <laughs> There was a conjuncture of some kind, intellectually and topically. So I'm as much a beneficiary of that conjuncture. At this point in our conversation, I asked Alinda to talk a little bit more about the stakes of her article and how she engaged with some of the available theoretical approaches as she went about conceptualizing how people in the Korean demilitarized zone live with landmines. I talk about um, Alfred Jell's work from Art and Agency, and he uses Pol Pot's soldier laying the mines. I guess it's famous, you know, because the book is famous. In my own um, thinking through these questions of agency, I was kind of reading him against Latour's famous inquiry into gun rights. It was interesting for me to consider them because they both are using kind of very opportunistically these weapons that are easily interpreted through a moral framework in order to make counterintuitive arguments. Gell, a little bit less so. For him, the mind is an extension of human agency versus, you know, Latour's uh, distributed agency. I was starting from the object, right? They were using the objects or the weapons opportunistically, but I was starting with the actual object and then saying, what can we say about this? And does this idea of distributed agency work? And so at the same time, I was engaging with Jane Bennett's writing on vibrant matter, which had provoked some 
critique because of the stealth romanticization of um, non-human things in the work. And so she says distributed agency is not about displacing blame. If anything, it forces us to think about ethics in a much more multiple kind of, you know, it's kind of like arguing against the uh, flat ontology of SCS as not having any political stakes. So that was helpful for me to get a configuration or a constellation of theoretical touch points. In some ways, however, she discovered that starting with the object, the landmine, and not the human, ended up carrying some risks. And then, yeah, what are the political and moral stakes or political and ethical stakes of that? And really not moral, because the moral part was, in my mind, the humanitarian, anti-humanitarian framework, which was not helpful. Uh, but I didn't want to be accused of valorizing landmines. <laughs> I have gotten a little bit of pushback from people who are saying, but they're awful and they traumatize people. And I say, yes, of course, they're awful and they traumatize people, but all sorts of other things happen too. And it was almost like trying to rescue a certain kind of agency that, again, is not just grounded in some human sovereignty, but emerges out of, to quote Karen Barad, the performative ontology of the human mind assemblage, quote unquote. If it's an anthropology of, I think that it has to be about asking how the categories that we carry around with us prevent us from seeing what's right in front of us and prevent us from seeing whatever political possibilities might exist, even in the most mundane and marginal places. When reading a number of articles that propose an anthropology of something, there are often arguments about ethnography and method. And I asked Alina whether there were any methodological implications that followed from her anthropology of landmines. Only, like, avoid them at all costs. <laughs> Even if you're doing, like, a materialist ontological study of mines, you know... I'm joking, but I'm not, you know. To do an ethnography of landmines, for me personally, I was not going to go with a minesweeper and actually like enter into a minefield. But I could take seriously the fact that some of the people I talked to would say, come join me in a minefield, it'll be fine. I know exactly what I'm doing because I know these mines. And I could also take seriously people saying, no one understands how victimized we are in this community, but I also am a patriot, I'm a hero, I'm a fully masculine Korean man because I could feed my family despite all of this by outwitting the minds, by knowing how to navigate these landscapes of death. I guess I don't feel like I'm in the column of the methodologically innovative, but I would say that generally the book that the landmine piece is a part of, it kind of takes seriously an approach to various human-non-human assemblages by uh, seeking out a way analytically and ethnographically to focus in on those relations as uh, the site of the emergent category itself. So I talk about landmines, I talk about these small irrigation ponds, and I talk about uh, 
avian flyways. Each of those things I'd handle as these assemblages of what we would consider to be nature, culture, or um, technical, but they're more than the, the, the sum of their parts. We know them through the knowledge practices of the folks who are most uh, closely engaging with them. So, um, so that's just a, an STSC kind of way of thinking about it. So if you listen to the debut episode, then you know that I noted a few commonalities that ran across a number of the articles proposing an anthropology of something. One is that they foreground the qualities of novelty, newness, and originality. At first, this did not stick out so much, because it seemed to be a natural part of such articles. But after a while, I began to wonder about the roots of this focus on novelty and originality. Webb Keen once wrote that the project of anthropology was, quote, an epistemological critique of received categories, of their givens, end quote. This, of course, is another way of describing how anthropology makes the familiar strange. Insofar as this is true, it could act as a motor engine driving the push towards originality, for anthropologists often question that which is taken for granted, or the terms that make up our common sense. Alina certainly did this by showing how a certain common sense about landmines, one that always framed them in terms of their role in wounding or killing, missed other ways that people lived with and lived through landmines and other unexploded ordnance. The prominence given to novelty or originality in these articles might also come from the generative relationship between fieldwork and conceptual work. We are often asked to answer two basic questions in our research. What does anthropology bring to the study of something like landmines? But also, what can the study of landmines bring to anthropology? This encourages us to see the discipline as something malleable, as something that our research might play a role in redefining or reshaping in some small way. And indeed, Alina's article offers a new concept, what she calls rogue infrastructure, to capture the qualities of landmines that underwrite her anthropology of them. The other related common feature I saw across articles that propose an anthropology of something was a celebration of the unanticipated, or the unintentional, or qualities like instability or volatility, or things or actions or relations that otherwise exceed existing categories, frameworks, norms, and so on. In thinking about the origins of this, I recalled another observation of Webb Keynes in an article about the development of anthropology after it largely rejected positivism. He argued that amid all of the anthropological debates in the 1980s and 1990s, one can detect a shared underlying ethic of freedom and interest in human agency. As he put it, an ethic of demonstrating some locus of human self-creation not reducible to external determinations. And it seems to me that this might help explain the anthropological focus on the excessive, which includes Alina's own interests in the rogue qualities of landmines. I shared some of these reflections with Alina and asked her for her own take on the place of originality and the excessive within the discipline. I'm so happy you brought up because it's like, it's so worth reflecting on why we do the things that we do. I'm completely guilty of reproducing this desire and search for the volatile, the excessive, the unanticipated, because it's exciting. But I also think that the value that we place on it needs to be critically examined more because we take it so for granted. 
And so when I am advising my students and I push them in that direction, of course it's true because we're not positivists that if we look at something in a deeply reflexive and rigorous way, um, just the nature of reality means that it will yield something unexpected, <laughs> right? So there's that. Uh, but which one of those unexpected things makes us feel like that's worthy of attention, publication, thinking, sharing, I think that we're almost um, weirdly bound to this idea of originality in our scholarship. And I always find it curious that when we as anthropologists find corroboration across our sites or, um, you know, even within similar locations, it's not celebrated because we have this kind of intellectual economy of the new and the original. And of course, everyone wants to discover something. And we talk about collaboration, right, a lot. But even with collaboration, we're looking for novelty. I feel like there's more to think about in terms of not just that very fact, but how it produces certain kinds of economies in our discipline that have actual economic <laughs> implications in terms of how to publish, get a job, etc. I don't want to reduce it just to the economy of, of the discipline. I mean, I wouldn't be able to continue doing this if I was just so jaded. <laughs> but, um, it's funny because if what we do is this epistemological critique of received categories, then the, you know, whatever you want to call them, these, you know, creation of our of novel categories like rogue infrastructures, in a way, we've already made it impossible to get overly attached to our own category because we're always expecting that they will be, if not taken up in order to be deconstructed, then not taken up at all. <laughs> I think there is something that drives us because we have this progressive embrace of both anthropology as a discipline and of politics and, and culture as continuously unfolding and offering other ways of viewing the world. American culture at large, maybe North American culture at large and American anthropology certainly was kind of trying to figure out where do we go from here? But it also connects to the whole idea of the method of hope that Hiro Miyazaki writes about and the kind of uh, hope for hope, the kind of desire for temporal reorientation, as he calls it. And that's a kind of knowledge project that may have to do with our particular moment in modernity. That concludes my conversation with Alina Kim on An Anthropology of Landmines. There are other episodes of this series that look at proposals for, variously, an anthropology of algorithms, of global health, of the multimodal, of electricity, and of lying that can be found in the same place you got this episode. Production wizardry for this podcast was provided by Matthew Bailey, and the music is by Abstractor. (laughs) 